The Exxon Radio Show is heard on radio broadcast affiliates worldwide, including AM 580 CFRA in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, WPUL AM 1590 in Daytona Beach, Florida, KOHI AM 1610 in St. Helens, Oregon, KHRO AM 1150 in El Paso, Texas. And for more information on becoming a professional broadcast affiliate of the Exxon Radio Show, visit www.xzbn.net or call toll-free worldwide 1-800-610-7035. The Exxon Radio and TV show is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio and TV show or in any manner endorsed by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, Talkstar Radio Network, its affiliated stations, or employees. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell. This is the Exxon Radio Show on the Talkstar Radio Network, Exxon Broadcast Network, UK High Definition Radio, Euro High Definition Radio, Star Cable, and Ustream. Toll-free worldwide, 1-800-610-7035. Email exxon at exxonradiotv.com. On MSN Messenger, TV at hotmail.com. And our website, www.exxonradiotv.com. My guest this hour, Exonation, is Dr. David E. Guggenheim. He is a marine scientist, con- uh, conservation policy specialist, submarine pilot, and ocean explorer. He is president of One Planet, One Ocean, a project of the Ocean Foundation where he is a senior fellow and director of its Cuba Marine Research and Conservation Program. He is currently uh, leading a major project to elevate collaboration in marine science and conservation among Cuba, Mexico, and the U.S. to a new level and leading the first ever comprehensive research and conservation program in Cuba's Gulf of Mexico region, a joint effort with the University of Havana. 
Joining me now from Washington, D.C. is Dr. Guggenheim. And uh, Dr. Guggenheim, welcome to the Exxon, sir. Great pleasure having you here. Thank you, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Doctor, the big news undoubtedly around uh, the... uh, the Gulf of Mexico throughout the United States, Canada, and Central America is the disaster, the catastrophe that is happening to the waters because of the BP oil fiasco. And and tell me, sir, since you're since you're involved in that specific area of the oceanographic areas, how, tell me how you feel. Tell me tell me how you really feel. Uh, I feel the same way that that your listeners feel, I'm sure. I feel terrible. I feel that this is something that not only affects uh, an amazing Mm -hmm. ecosystem, but it affects me personally. We're all connected to the oceans, even if we live far inland. The oceans help us breathe every day of our lives and give us food, and um, they're just... uh, an incredibly important resource. I've spent most of my career trying to protect one part or another of the Gulf of Mexico. I've spent a lot of time in, in Florida. I've worked in Mexico. And as you mentioned, I've been working in Cuba yeah. the last 10 years. And the thing that I found about the Gulf of Mexico is that it is far more vibrant than even I could have imagined. And that makes the tragedy that much worse because it's it's not a brown, muddy cauldron where hurricanes come from it's much more i've seen some of the bluest clearest water i've ever seen anywhere in the world in the gulf of mexico and coral reefs whales dolphins birds Uh, that just to me is um it makes it that much more of a tragedy Doctor, please stand by. We have to take a commercial break. Exonation, our very special guest this hour is Dr. David Guggenheim. www.the1planet1ocean.org. That's oneplanet1ocean.org. We'll be back. You don't want to miss this hour. Nation, Dr. David Guggenheim is our special guest. www.oneplanet1ocean.org. That's the number one. Then the word planet, number one, ocean.org. Also known as the Ocean Doctor and host of Expedition Cast podcast series, Dr. Guggenheim is currently engaged in a special expedition to all 50 states visiting schools and bringing special programs about the ocean exploration and conservation to young students. So far, he's traveled more than 35,000 miles, visited 13 states, made 39 speeches, 
and reached more than 10,000 students in schools ranging from the uh, northernmost community in North America, Barrow, Alaska, to Maxville, Kansas, close to the geographic center of the lower 48 states to the southern tip of Florida. Once again, www.oneplanetoneocean.org. You know, Doctor, we see the images of oil-covered birds and other wildlife, but there are many impacts of this massive oil spill we're probably not seeing. What can you tell us about uh, what this oil spill is to the Gulf, and, and will it recover? Well, you know, the problem is that as, as heartbreaking as these images are of all of these birds and dolphins that we can see, mm-hmm. there's so much more that we just can't see. This is an oil spill that is impacting every, every part of the spectrum in the food chain, in that whole ecosystem fabric. And we are especially concerned about the use of dispersant because it doesn't make the oil disappear. It's not vanishing cream. It just turns it into smaller droplets, which then move further downstream and stay deep in the water where they can infiltrate the food chain either in the deep water corals, in the deep water critters that live in the bottom, or in the microscopic plankton that float in the water column. So we may be looking at a problem that is spread out over thousands of square miles and lasts for generations. The, the question of recovery, I mean, we've seen nature do some remarkable things. It's, Mother Nature is remarkably resilient, and we do hope that she can bounce back once again. But the problem is the Gulf already had a lot of problems going into this. And uh, one of those problems has been overfishing, another being a dead zone the size of the state of New Jersey due to nutrient pollution coming down the Mississippi, along with many other things. So there's concern that maybe the system just isn't as resilient as it needs to be to recover from something that is still growing in in magnitude. What happens to a lot of the species that were endangered or still are endangered in the Gulf of Mexico? How is the 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 damage the the pollution that is going on in, in the thousands of barrels each and every day going to affect the the survival of certain species well the impact to species like pelicans is pretty obvious now the we the, pel, the brown pelican is an icon of a great success story we protected the brown pelican which was highly endangered back in the 60s due to ddt and it's made a wonderful recovery all throughout the Gulf of Mexico. But you can see what happens when a pelican does what you know it, it, it needs to do for a living, diving into the water. When that water is covered with oil, it, it uh, puts itself in a very, very uh, risky situation. And many of them die. But the, the other critters that are at risk in, in the Gulf of Mexico, many of them are fish. And and invertebrates, uh, corals, for example. We've already lost worldwide about 25% of the world's corals. Uh, And in the Florida Keys, for example, we've lost almost 50% of those corals. Coral is an animal. It has to make a living too. It eats plankton and uses photosynthesis. And the problem is this oil can enter the food chain at just about any level 
and as these uh, as these organisms concentrate that uh, in the food chain, the toxicity of that chemical of the of the harmful mm-hmm. chemicals within the oil concentrate uh, bioaccumulate in the tissue, and they biomagnify, which means the concentration grows every time something eats something smaller than it. So that's why I express concern about the fact that this could be a problem we see for generations. Now, you've described this as an international incident and have expressed concern about the oil reaching areas hundreds or thousands of miles downstream, including Cuba. Is this still a threat? Yes. In fact, earlier today, NOAA has released, NOAA being the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they've released their latest models that are projecting where this oil is likely to go. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with the model is only looking at, uh, it's primarily looking at surface oil, and it's not really taking into account the use of those dispersants. So there's a huge unknown associated with this. But uh, that being as it may, if you look at the models and where this oil is likely to go, uh, it will eventually get caught up into the loop current. And that loop current takes, takes the water and anything floating in it, such as oil, south toward the northwestern coast of Cuba before making a major turn to the east up through the Florida Keys, the east coast of Florida, including Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and that area before heading offshore into what becomes the, uh, the current that heads over to, uh, to Europe and the, uh, the Gulf Stream. But along the way, there is likely to be significant impact because all of that oil is, as I said before, is not magically disappearing, they're only able to capture a small amount of it, and that oil is is of great concern. My work has been uh, primarily in Cuba over the last 10 years, and the thing about Cuba is that it's like a time machine. It's like going back 500 years to see what Christopher Columbus saw. I was absolutely shocked to see healthy corals, the healthiest marine ecosystems I've seen anywhere, and the hope is to learn from those and learn from those about what Cuba's doing right or what's unique about its situation so we can restore corals in our own backyard and around the world. Wouldn't it be tragic if we lost those corals due to this oil spill? It certainly would. You know, we, we've also heard stories about enormous quantities of methane gas being released uh, along with the oil. Why is this of concern? Wouldn't the methane gas just float to the top of the uh, ocean and disperse in the air? Indeed, a lot of the methane does do just that. It bubbles to the surface, as you might expect. But along the journey from a mile down, a lot of that gas dissolves into the water column. And apparently, there is a significant amount of gas. Normally, you get about a 5% uh, fraction of the blowout, including natural gas. Here, I've heard estimates as high as 40% of what's coming out as natural gas. It's very highly concentrated. It's a carbon compound, which means it's an organic material, and it's food for hungry bacteria, which is good news because there are bacteria in the water column that are eager to eat all that stuff up along with oil. Mm-hmm. The problem is when they, when they munch on, the, on that gas and on the oil, 
that's a process that uses oxygen and it takes oxygen out of the water column and robs the oxygen from other other creatures that need it and and especially creatures like fish which have gills and breathe oxygen through their gills from the water and as a result you have conditions already scientists have measured background concentrations of methane 10,000 times higher than normal and oxygen levels in these areas have dropped to less than 25% of what's normal and as if that weren't bad enough there's already an area of low oxygen this dead zone that I that I mentioned yes. earlier this is a dead zone and it's caused by the same thing it's all of this nutrient pollution fertilizers coming from 38 of the U.S. states, two Canadian provinces, 40% of the continental U.S. drains into the Mississippi, and that's a lot of nutrients and fertilizer, and those fertilizers do exactly the same thing in the Gulf of Mexico that they do on the farms and in your backyard. They make plants grow in, in the water. They make algae grow. When that algae dies, it's the same situation as oil and gas. The bacteria go to work on it, and that robs the water column of oxygen. It's the second largest dead zone in the world, second only to one in the Baltic Sea, where really nothing can live. Unbelievable. What is the, you know, with all the, with all the bacteria growing, what's the ultimate, uh, what's the worst that can happen? Well, the, the worst that can happen is I'm afraid is already starting to happen and we're seeing the size of that dead zone continue to grow and you know a lot of well-meaning folks have suggested why don't we use these naturally occurring bacteria to get rid of the oil Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense but it comes at a cost and that's the problem of of oxygen now there's some other folks who've suggested why don't we put bubble curtains in the water that would serve a number of purposes it would it would oxygenate the water and therefore help keep the oxygen levels up it might help prevent wildlife from going in the wrong direction and it might actually create a physical barrier to keep oil from coming on shore and i hear they're actually going to try this out in uh i believe it's destin florida uh, as a as a uh, test case, and I think it's great. Uh, the one, you know, if you've you've got to look on the bright side in a in a disaster like this, and and the one thing that I find heartening is that it's pulling us all together to to think about yeah. solutions, to think about how much we treasure these ecosystems, how much they really mean to us, and it's increasing awareness. But the way the community is pulling together, I I think, is is very admirable. Doctor, please stand by. We've got to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Dr. David Guggenheim is our special guest, oneplanetoneocean.org. I'll be back with a good doctor on the other side of this news break. Don't go away. You're listening to the X Zone Radio Show live and around the world on the Talkstar Radio Network. 
Exxon Broadcast Network, UK High Definition Radio, Euro High Definition Radio, and Star Cable. Our toll-free telephone number worldwide is 1-800-610-7035. Our email address, xzone at xzoneradiotv.com. On MSN Messenger, xzoneradiotv at hotmail.com. And our website, www.xzoneradiotv.com. Why do I feel like I'm losing control? On this useless night With you so far away I stand in front of this very Welcome back, everyone. Dr. David Guggenheim is our special guest, www.oneplanetoneocean.org. Doctor, when you're out talking to the kids in the schools uh, on this wonderful project you're on, what kind of questions do they ask you, and how do they react to what's going on in the Gulf? Boy, I get some great questions. In fact, I had a fourth-grade class in Virginia submit 10 really creative ideas for dealing with the oil spill and I'm just delighted that they are fully engaged in this issue this is a this is a life learning issue for them it's about something that is part of their future unfortunately it's a problem that they will inherit uh, and um, you know kids are very creative well one of the questions I, I get a lot of questions about sharks and uh, it's the 35th anniversary of the movie Jaws, and my message to them, I mean, I'm surprised kids are terrified of sharks, really terrified of sharks. And I think it's a product of of Shark Week and other sort of sensational TV that I know that these kids watch. And unfortunately, they're not getting the message that humans are a much greater threat to sharks than sharks are to humans. We've managed to kill about 90% of the world's sharks over the last 50 years. And you're about 300 times more likely to be killed by a deer than you are by a shark. Um, because, you know, we drive down the road and we run into deer and that can be a fatal, a fatal encounter, mm -hmm. unfortunately. So part of it is undoing some of the myths and some of the fear of the oceans. I also get a lot of questions about the submarine. I pilot a small one-person submersible. And what I realize is kids are really curious, but they don't realize there's a sense that we've already explored everything. And they are absolutely shocked when I say, you know what? We've only explored 5% of the world's oceans. We've been busy in outer space. We yeah. know more about the backside of the moon than we do about the bottom of the ocean. And 
I say, don't ever let anybody tell you that there's nothing left to explore because you guys are the ones that are going to have to work on that other 95%. There's a lot out there to explore. And then in the same breath, I usually get a question of, of um, do I get to eat snacks when I'm in the sub? <laughs> because they can't imagine that I'm away from food for four to six hours. And uh, I think we have a bit of a snack-obsessed younger generation right now. But uh, you know, I take that in, in stride. I think it's a, it's a fair question. Uh, but I'm, I'm very inspired by these kids. There's a great love of the oceans, even mm -hmm. in the states where I'm visiting kids and where, where half the kids have never even seen an ocean. They're already in love with it. And all we need to do is, is, uh, you know, take advantage of that and really get them, you know, continue to spark their interest, give them opportunities to learn more about it. Now, how deep does your sub actually go, Doctor? And what's the deepest you've gone in your submersible? I've gone to about 2,000 feet, which is the limit of this particular sub. These are built in Vancouver, up in British Columbia, mm -hmm. by a company called Nutco. And they are the smallest submarines. It's a one-person submersible called the Deep Worker. It flies completely independently. There's no tether to the surface. You are always at one atmosphere of pressure, meaning it's the same pressure you would feel in your living room. So you don't have any of the problems with pressure that a scuba diver would. Mm -hmm. So you can go up and down. You don't feel your ears pop. You don't have to decompress. And you've got enough battery power to last uh, as I say, the average dive four to six hours, but in an emergency, you can generate enough air supply to stay down for 80 hours, wow. more than three days, which is long enough to fly a rescue helicopter or a rescue sub in from anywhere in the world if, if that were necessary. But I feel very safe in these subs. I feel a lot safer than driving on the Washington, D.C. Beltway, I'll tell you that. I've been there. I've driven it. I understand exactly what you mean. Doctor, what do you think would happen if we were to to spend all the resources that we spend, and I'm talking about worldwide, on space exploration and concentrate on the oceans? There's a, a an interesting question there because... It might have gone that way had it not been for the Cold War. It, it, believe it or not, it was 50 years ago this year, we celebrated here in Washington 50 years ago that Don Walsh and French explorer Jacques Picard made their historic dive in a bathyscaphe to the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean in the Mariana Trench, seven miles down, which is like, if you climbed Mount Everest, there would, uh, if you put Mount Everest at the bottom of that, that trench and climbed to the top, there would still be another mile of water on top mm -hmm. of your head. That's how deep that is. They made this historic journey 1960, and we've never been back. And there are no submarines in the world that can go even half of that depth today. And it really illustrates that we have focused our attentions elsewhere, and we associate exploration, the final frontier, with outer space. Now, 
space exploration I've been a big fan of, and I would I would be careful about taking money away from the space program, but I sure would like to see it more in balance because there are so many mysteries. Yeah. Every expedition I've been on, including in the Gulf of Mexico, we've pulled up new species, uh, things that no human eyes have ever seen before. And I worry that with this oil spill, these animals will be gone before we can ever even discover them. It must, uh, when you're down in your, in your submersible, have you come across any life form that has never been seen before? Uh, several times. Uh, in the Bering Sea, I was on an expedition actually along with Greenpeace. It was a partnership of Greenpeace and NOAA, an interesting partnership on the uh, uh, Greenpeace ship Esperanza looking at deep sea corals. And these are corals. We usually associate corals with the tropics, but corals grow all over the world, and even in cold water. They are the oldest living animals on the planet. They can live up to 4,000 years old, and it's an amazing sight to get down to 2,000 feet and see these beautiful, they look like little trees of pink and orange and, and various colors, all all over the place. You know, it makes you really appreciate that even in the darkest corners and the cold water that life can flourish. The problem up there is that we, um, we see trawlers going through, dragging the bottom. It's essentially strip mining the bottom and killing those corals in the blink of an eye, what may have taken centuries to, to grow. But they, uh, during that expedition, we found a new species of sponge, which is a s colonial animal that we associate with doing the dishes, but it's a, it's a, it's a very important animal to that, that ecosystem. And we found corals that had never been documented in the Bering Sea before. And so that was, uh, that was very exciting. In the Gulf of Mexico, about five years ago, we found a giant nudibranch. It's the size of a dinner plate, and a nudibranch is essentially a sea slug. It's a giant snail with no shell, and it was purple. It was this big purple blob, and then we realized, hey, that, that thing has antennae. Hmm. It's got two little antennae, and, you know, everybody's scratching their head saying, never saw it before. <laughs> so, you know, it's what keeps you young. I mean... And it also, I've always said that exploration and conservation go hand in hand because the more you explore and the more you find, the more you realize uh, that so much is at risk if we don't take care of it. So much of the deep that we thought was um, dead is thriving with life. Something I, I, I read where uh, you said, uh, where you actually did a blog, and it's entitled, Want to Help the Gulf Kill Your Lawn. What's that about? <laughs> well, it's a bit of a provocative title, but when you look at this giant dead zone, well, let me back up and just say that I, I talk to a lot of people, and there's an amazing amount of frustration. You know, we're all watching this, this leak day after day. Yeah. Uh, this plume of oil erupting into the Gulf, and we feel helpless. We feel like there's nothing we can do about it. Some people have donated hair. Some people have donated money. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
but I was thinking about the fact that here we've got this enormous dead zone that's getting larger, and we've got 38 U.S. states and a bit of Saskatchewan and Alberta also connected directly to the Gulf of Mexico along with the Gulf states themselves. And most of these homes in those areas have lawns because back in the 1800s, we became infatuated with what was going on in Europe and in England and everybody had lawns. And there was mm -hmm. a, uh, this, this sense that we all needed to outcompete our neighbors and have the greenest lawn on the block. But we're using so much fertilizer and water and all of that ends up in our water bodies and much of it ends up in the Gulf and is contributing to the problem. So I was using the example of a wonderful program in Florida called the Florida Yards and Neighborhoods Program, which is working in conjunction with the government and it's donating to citizens free information and free training on how to replant your lawn uh, with native vegetation, which the beauty is you don't have to water or fertilize it because it's native. It, it's already used to living there. You know, you, it, it's, a, it's an ideal solution and it actually attracts wildlife. And imagine if, if many of us did this, mm -hmm. it, would, it would really make a difference. And it's, it's one thing we can literally do in our own backyards that can help the Gulf of Mexico. ExoNation, our special guest this hour is Dr. David Guggenheim. And uh, his website is www.oneplanetoneocean.org. If the President of the United States was to call you up, Doctor, and say, Dr. David, I'm putting you in charge of the cleanup of the Gulf of Mexico because of your qualifications, what would you do? How would you handle that task? Well, that would be a scary phone call um, because that's a huge responsibility. But I'll tell you, the first thing I would do would be to stop using these dispersants. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a huge mistake. It's, it, the problem is it's an uncontrolled experiment. It's never been done before. We've never applied dispersants at depth. And I am very concerned that we are simply displacing the problem. We may be keeping a little more oil off some of the beaches, but we're sending it further south and into many other different kinds of ecosystems as a, as a consequence. Um, the other thing that I would do is I would, you know, I would certainly ramp up the efforts. It seems that we have a huge number of people with vessels, with two hands, with big hearts uh, who want to help, but there's nothing to really, you know, latch onto for these folks. There's no place to go, no place to sign up. There's a few conservation organizations doing great work. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a Vessel of Opportunity program that NOAA has, which is great. But I think that we could kick that up a notch and really harness the passion and the, the volunteerism yeah. that, that, that that's, exists in this country to, to get things done. I agree. Doctor, please stand by. You and I have to take our final break for this hour. ExoNation, it's been a great hour with our guest this uh, hour, Dr. David Guggenheim. Uh, www.oneplanetoneocean.org. That's the number one, then planet, the number one, 
ocean.org. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. 1-800-610-7035, worldwide toll-free. Email exxon at exxonradiotv.com. On MSN Messenger, TV at hotmail.com. And our website, www.exxonradiotv.com. Once again, for more information on Dr. David Guggenheim, www.oneplanetoneocean.org. Don't go away. Nation, Dr. David Guggenheim is our special guest, oneplanetoneocean.org. What about the seafood in the Gulf, Doctor? Is it safe? Well, at this point, the, uh, the authorities have closed down a significant portion of, of the Gulf to mm-hmm. fishing because it's believed that those fish are are toxic right. uh, and shellfish. Uh, that's about a third of the, the fishing areas. But again, this is a long-term issue. And even if the government declares seafood safe to eat, I'm afraid that you know the, the consumers are, are a fickle bunch yeah. and easily scared off. This could have long-term implications for the Gulf of Mexico and its fishing industry. One of the things I've proposed is that we take a look at the newest technology for growing fish on land as a way to help that industry recover and create an adjunct that is sustainable. These fish are farming. systems. These are systems that are used in uh, in Europe and in Asia and Australia. Not so much in the Americas yet, but think of it as a large water treatment Mm -hmm. facility with a fish tank. It recirculates 99% of its water, no chemicals or antibiotics and no discharge, and they can be put inland close to where the fish is going to be consumed. And uh, I've seen these systems as small as little backyard systems as and as large in in Denmark I saw one that was a thousand tons per year supplying wow. 20% of the eel to the European market they really love eel over there I don't know why it's a, it's a festive fish around uh, the holidays instead of eating 
turkey they eat uh, eel or like they do now uh, in in i think where is it uh oregon where they're killing off the canadian geese <laughs> anyway oh, that's I another really? I didn't hear that yeah one. there there's a park in oregon in one of the cities i forget which one it is that uh, the, there's so many Canadian geese that are defecating on their parks. They they killed 150 of them, I believe, and they gave the meat to the uh, to the homeless. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> well, um, I'm sorry, you didn't you know, mean to what, get you off track. No, no. I'm gonna. Uh, what I was gonna mention is that just recently, I've been spending time in Vancouver, mm-hmm. uh, and the British Columbian government and uh, local business community and the seafood industry have all gotten together to address the fact that there are opportunities to grow salmon on land and keep that region in the salmon business. And and I think that's a great model for, uh, for the Gulf of Mexico. So what I'm hoping to do in the next few weeks is to have a, a strategic workshop in the Gulf region to kind of pull some bright minds together and look at this and see if we can't get that region to rebuild itself. A whole, new industry, its called, industry. A whole new industry called fish, uh, fish farming. Doctor, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Great pleasure. Look forward to the next time you're here with us in the Exxon. And from the planet Earth to you, Doctor, thank you for all the wonderful things that you're doing. Thanks so much. My great pleasure, sir. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break at six and a half minutes past as we continue right here in the Exxon. My name is Rob McConnell. Don't go away. 